Welcome to A Life in Biography. This is part four of a continuing series on what's new in biography 2021. And before I say anything more, I just wanted to note that you may hear in the background a crackling fire since I'm close to a fireplace. So just consider this a fireside chat about biography. I'm going to introduce you to three biographies published in 2021, biographies of what could be called well-worn subjects. That is, there have been many biographies of these subjects, and so the question always comes up, why another one? Why another biography of the same subject? Before I start dealing with the three particular books I will be discussing, I want to say that Part of the reason why um, these subjects are so well-worn is because they sell, because publishers seem to crave a known quantity, something that has sold before they think will sell again. Sometimes the biographer uh, of the subject is also well-known, and so it's a twofer. It's a famous uh, biographer that is as famous as any biographer could be and an even more famous subject, so that pairing is important. Sometimes it's an important scholar who's devoted his or her lifetime of research to the subject and finally has gotten around to writing a biography. The other thing I want to say about these three books is, uh, and this may shock you, I haven't read them. So how can I talk about them? Well, what I'm going to do is I've done with um, the other parts of the series is read you just a bit that I have actually read from these biographies that um, make certain points about biography and that may want you, may want me, uh, to continue to read these books. So I'm really sort of sampling them the way you might walk into a bookstore and start browsing through a book, or now you can go online to Amazon and read a sample uh, from a book. Uh, I'm sort of doing that. The difference is you're with me here in the bookstore or online in this case, and I will stop from time to time as a professional biographer and comment on the moves, so to speak, that the biographer is making in his or her preface or prologue or what are they, whatever they happen to call it. All right, the first... Um, biography, uh, which has uh, gotten some very good reviews already, is of Robert E. Lee, and it's simply called Robert E. Lee, A Life, by Ellen C. Guelzo. It's published by Knopf. That's the one of the premier publishers, trade book publishers. That's almost, for some people, a guarantee of value. If you have your book published by Knopf, you're almost certain to be reviewed in the New York Times book review. Not Absolutely, can I say that's the case, but in most cases, certain publishers are simply taken more seriously than others. Um, there's a ranking uh, that goes on. Um, so if you put together, in this case, of uh, a, a research scholar, uh, Alan C. Guelzo, Council of Humanities at Princeton University, director of the James Madison Program's Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship, he is the author of several books about the Civil War and so on. So there are people who are Civil War buffs, 
and so on, who will probably be attracted to this book simply because it's by Guelzo. All right. Um, this book begins with a prologue. And with the title to the prologue, The Mystery of Robert E. Lee. Well, you ask yourself, how could there possibly be any mystery? How many books have, have there been about Robert E. Lee? I don't know. I haven't counted them up, but uh, there have got to be hundreds, maybe thousands. I don't know. Um, prologue, The Mystery of Robert E. Lee. I want to say one other thing before I actually start reading uh, from this book, and that is uh, the historian of Robert E. Lee, uh, four-volume biography, is by uh, Douglas Southall Freeman. And I was just looking online at the Kindle edition, which has an introduction by uh, two actually important uh, historians, uh, one of them, James McPherson, who had a best-selling book about the Civil War. And he talks about how when Freeman wrote about Robert E. Lee, he was writing about a national hero. Well, from our point of view, that is from today, uh, the very idea of Robert E. Lee as a national hero, hero to many people, not to all, not to certain Southerners, uh, but to many people, the idea of Robert E. Lee as a national hero is a contradiction in terms. Part of what every biography is, of course, no matter how far distant in the past your subject is, every biography in some sense is a product of its own time, to, to state a truism. And Guelzo is very much aware of that in his prologue. It begins this way. This book began in 2014, in what now seems like almost another world, with a single question. How do you write the biography of someone who commits treason? How do you write the biography of someone who commits treason? That question was never put by Douglas Southall Freeman. He lived in a different time, in a different age, uh, in the aftermath of a civil war in which the North, uh, and you can see it especially in popular culture in, in films like Gone with the Men, with the Wind, united with the South in a kind of legend about what the war was like and the, those who fought in it. We live in a very different age. Not only do we live in a different age, but the biographer is telling us things have radically changed since 2014 six, seven years ago. That is his first sentence. How do you write the biography of someone who commits treason? The question is complicated because, as Paul Murray Kendall wrote in The Art of Biography, the usual task of the biographer is to perpetuate a man as he was in the days he lived. A spring task of bringing to life again constantly threatened by unseasonable freezes. He's quoting Paul Murray Kendall. Guelzo goes on, what my question suggests is that there may be some lives that we hesitate to perpetuate, and among the reasons for that hesitation must surely be treason. Well, maybe that's part of the mystery. 
how could Robert E. Lee be celebrated uh, when he's our most famous traitor? In the case of Robert Edward Lee, this turns out to be an even more serious hesitation. Being a Yankee from Yankee land, it has always seemed to me that the treason Lee committed was aggravated by the nature of the cause for which he committed it, the protection of legalized human slavery. And that rankles me to the sole of my abolitionist boots. Something else he's telling us. He's telling us about where he comes from, especially with a, with a um, biography of someone like Robert E. Lee. You need to know where the biographer stands. I don't mean necessarily his position immediately on Robert E. Lee, but where he comes from, what his education was, what his training is, what his background is. All the things you would ask, you would want to know about a narrator in a work of fiction, especially in this case, you want to know about a biographer. Welzo goes on to say, I was literally catechized at my grandmother's knee in the righteousness of the Union War. She had caught the enthusiasm herself as a girl in Philadelphia's George Clymer School, when white-haired veterans of the Union Army would make their annual Decoration Day visit. That's what it used to be called, Decoration Day. Not, not what we call it today. Decoration Day to visit and to explain the real meaning of the war and excoriate the Confederate traitors. And it would take no great struggle for me to capture Lee in a squinting, and cynical view. He's admitting here as a biographer, my own tendencies, my own upbringing, where I come from, means what? Means I could take a very squinting and cynical view to squint, you know, um, a hard look, a narrow look, um, a prejudiced look, however you want to say it. He's rolling around here all kinds of considerations that go into both the writing and the reading of a biography of Robert E. Lee. His next sentence. Yet no one, oh, and I should say as well, if that's how he grew up, think about how Southerners have grown up. Think how, in, in the case of one of my subjects, um, William Faulkner who, who, who in, in grade school was given a biography, you know, a laudatory biography of Robert E. Lee to read uh, and uh, to, to essentially worship him. Faulkner outgrew that worship, that's for sure. Just read Absalom, Absalom. Fantastic passage in Absalom, Absalom about uh, the incompetent leadership of the Confederate army which in many ways was masked by this adoration of Robert E. Lee. Anyway, Guelzo goes on after saying, it would be no great struggle for me to capture Lee in a squinting and cynical view. Yet no one who met Robert Edward Lee, no matter what the circumstances of the meeting, ever seemed to fail to be impressed by the man. His dignity, his manners, his composure, all seem to create a peculiar sense of awe in the minds of observers. From his earliest days as a cadet at West Point, through 25 years as an officer in the U.S. Army's Corps of Engineers, and six more as a senior cavalry officer, and then as the supreme commander of the armies of the Confederacy, 
Lee was the model of gentility and propriety. John Brown Gordon, who served under Lee through the Civil War until the end at Appomattox, thought Lee was the pattern of modest demeanor and manly decorum. Abraham Lincoln remarked that a photograph of Lee showed that Lee's is a good face. It is a face of a noble, noble, brave man. That's Lincoln speaking. Not even Ulysses Grant could escape the sense of being upstaged by Lee at Appomattox. He was a man of much dignity, this is Grant speaking, with an impassable face. Grant wrote in his memoirs, dressed in a full uniform which was entirely new and wearing a sword of considerable value. While Grant was self-conscious of my rough traveling suit, the uniform of a private with the straps of a lieutenant general sewn on. I must have contrasted strangely, Grant admitted, with a man so handsomely dressed, six feet high in a faultless form. What is Grant describing? He might as well be describing a movie star. Guelzo goes on. These impressions appear so consistent and over so many years that it has been easy to conclude that dignity, manners, and composure simply were the man. That there was, as Douglas Salthall Freeman insisted at the end of his four-volume biography of Lee, no mystery at all to Robert E. Lee. Or, as Burton Hedrick wrote in The Lives of Virginia, that Lee's character was ruled by, great, uh, by a great simplicity, or that, in the woods of an even more worshipful biographer, Clifford Dowdy, Lee could rest totally in very simple things. Even those close to Lee, like his staffer Armistead Lindsay Long, were convinced that his character was perfectly simple. There were in it no folds or sinuosities. No folds or sinuosities. However, Guelzo goes on, this picture of straightforward, well-nigh angelic serenity sits uneasily beside moments when cracks and inconsistencies in that fable serenity appeared. For instance, Lee worried constantly and insistently about money, even though he had married into one of the most prominent families in the District of Columbia, that of George Washington Park Custis and his wife Mary Fitzhugh Custis, who owned the palatial estate they called Arlington, perched palatine-like on the Potomac Bluffs overlooking the capital city and staffed with a small army of slaves. In fact, according to the will he filed before going off to fight in the Mexican War, Lee had actually inherited a decent sum from his mother, Ann Carter Lee, and had invested it with enough success to have acquired a portfolio worth $38,750, almost $1.2 million in 2020. It made no difference. When he left for Texas in 1855 to become Lieutenant Colonel of the 2nd Cavalry, he still insisted on managing the family's money affairs, even though the rest of the family was living 1,600 miles away at Arlington. Other kinds of cracks opened under pressure. Trained as an engineer and director of a series of demanding coastal engineering projects, from controlling the silting up of the St. Louis waterfront 
to the construction of Fort Carroll in Baltimore Harbor, Lee was at his happiest with a draftsman's notebook in hand. But when matters spilled out of the kind of control that T-squares and equations can impose, Lee grew impatient, contemptuous, and on one significant occasion, violent. When his father-in-law died in 1857, Lee was named executor of the Custis estate, which to his surprise required him to superintend the emancipation within five years of all the Custis slaves at Arlington and two other Custis-owned properties. I'm thinking about Grant's, what we already know about Grant's sense of, of um, Robert E. Lee's impassivity, not giving away anything really. Who does it remind you of? And it, partly it's why I think for a long time Lee was a national hero, even though as he's called at the beginning of this biography a traitor. Who he reminds me of is George Washington, of course, who was also famous for not giving away his emotions, but who also had a temper, uh, who had to work hard to control that temper, but in public was a kind of marble man. Another Virginian, too, of course. Glauzer goes on, Lee could not hurry to execute, execute this emancipation, that is of slaves he had uh, come into possession of, because the will also mandated that a $10,000 legacy be paid to each of Lee's four daughters. Because the properties had been for years run haphazardly by old Custis, Lee would need to turn them into engines of efficiency to pay the required legacies. That he did with an engineer's sense of precision. But the Custis slaves did not share his interest in making Arlington and the other places profitable. They believed that the Custis will had, in fact, emancipated them at once. And in 1858, three of them, two men and a woman, acted on that belief and fled to Westminster, Maryland, where they were apprehended and returned to Arlington. Now, why do we need to know all that? Because of the next paragraph. Lee had all three whipped. By one account, he took the whip in his own hands and flayed them himself. Afterward, he was so appalled at his own rage that he could not admit the full extent of what he had done, even to his son, Custis. What exacerbated his guilt was the fact that Lee actually owned only one slave family himself, inherited from his mother and regarded slavery as a moral and political evil, which, however, he was content to leave in the hands of God, to resolve. He funded the expatriation of slaves from Arlington who agreed to resettle in the American Colonization Society's West African outpost of Liberia, and in 1862 completed the emancipation of the Custis slaves, which he was obligated to do by his father-in-law's will, and then freed his own, which he was not. I'm not going to read too much more, but I want to read the next sentence. Um, Robert E. Lee's anxieties, his impatience, and his inconsistencies have, since the publication of Thomas L. Connolly's melodramatic recasting of Lee's historical reputation in The Marbled Man, Robert E. Lee and his image in American society, been seized upon as a triumphant contradiction of the Lee, who so impressed his contemporaries, civilian and military. But casting Lee in contradiction as either saint or sinner, as either simple or pathological, is in the end less profitable 
and seeing his anxieties as a counterpoint, and he puts in italics as a counterpoint, his anxieties as a counterpoint to his dignity, his impatience, and his temper as the match to his composure. To begin to understand the mystery of Robert E. Lee is to begin with three large-scale factors lodged deep in the man's personality, all three rooted in the early trauma inflicted by one of the more remarkably dysfunctional families of the early Republic. Through the Revolution, the Lees of Virginia had been one of the first of American families presided over, uh, who presided over large properties on the northern neck of Virginia. The four Lee siblings who straddled the Revolutionary years, Richard Henry, Francis Lightfoot, Arthur, and William, were described by John Adams as that band of brothers, intrepid and unchangeable, who stood in the gap in defense of their country from the first glimmering of the revolution through all its rising light to its perfect day. But something in the succeeding generation of Lees snapped, and nowhere was the snap louder than in the case of Henry Lee, Robert's father, a graduate of Princeton and the same student body as James Madison, Henry Lee served George Washington so effectively as a cavalry leader that he won, he won the nickname of Light Horse Harry. And in the glow of the revolution, Light Horse Harry captured not only the hand of his cousin Matilda and her family's estate, Stratford Hall, but the governorship of Virginia. After that, Light Horse Larry disintegrated. His ardent federalism antagonized Virginia's Jeffersonians. His harebrained investment schemes bankrupted him. And I'm going to stop there because uh, what Welso goes on to say uh, is uh, if you want to know about Robert E. Lee, you have to understand how he was living in the shadow, an example of his father, a poor example that Lee had to try to outlive. Now, the next book, and I don't know, by the way, whether Guelzo uh, can maintain that kind of pace that he has in his, his prologue, which m makes uh, Lee uh, a complex figure, not, not simple at all. Um, I'm sure other biographers have done this, and someone who's made a Lee, study of Lee biography may, may, may or may not find Guelzo's uh, approach fresh. But it's certainly written as a biography uh, with the values uh, of this age, and as Guelzo freely admits, his own upbringing. Now, another subject uh, who's written about all the time is Oliver Cromwell. Um, Ronald Hutton, a Cromwell scholar of the period that Cromwell lived in, has written The Making of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, this book is published by Yale University Press. Not a trade book, but Yale, like some of the bigger university presses, has turned to biography and essentially is a trade book publisher and gets often gets the kind of attention that a trade book publisher has. Um, this biographer, again, Ronald Hutton, uh, wastes no time in asking the question that anyone would want to ask of an, 
yet another biography of Oliver Cromwell. Why another book about Oliver Cromwell, he asks in an introduction. The question is one which may readily occur to anybody familiar with the history of his period. There can be few other figures from the British and Irish, Irish past about whom as much has already been published as on him. Indeed, he seems to be the most heavily studied ruler in the whole history of these islands. And in recent years, the pace of publication on him has accelerated markedly. Since 1990, there have already been five successive full-scale biographies by distinguished academic scholars. In addition, the same period has seen the long and important entry by John Morrill in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, three book-length studies of Cromwell as a soldier, and three major collections of essays upon his career and its impact. Around these may be piled the essay-length surveys of his life and character, and the books, articles, and chapters which have concentrated on particular episodes of his story, let alone those on individual events and personalities involved in it, which in turn reflect upon him. It is perfectly in order to suggest that the changing historical occupations mean that a leading historical figure needs to be considered anew in each generation, but such considerations hardly justify a new life of this one, on average, every five years. Uh, so, why another one? He goes on to write, Such a phenomenon might be more explicable if these recent biographers had disagreed fundamentally. He's already telling you, this is not a revisionist biographer Cromwell. He's not going to say all these historians and biographers have got him wrong. Hutton goes on to say, um, they haven't disagreed or created a controversy which has provoked further interventions, but the exact opposite has been true. Although differing, differing slightly in preoccupation and nuance, all of them since 1990 have given us essentially the same men, an intensely courageous, devout, and highly principled one whose most important relationship was with his God and whose main political goal was to bring to fruition that God's intentions for the English. The corollary of this view, come to all these recent writers, is to make Cromwell's own mighty, complex, and conflicted personality the driving motor of events, subordinating contextual factors to his will on a personal journey of revelation and implementation. So why, with such apparent consensus, has this stream of books continued, and why does it continue here? Before I have him answer the question, I'm going to answer the question, which is, that's what biography is, isn't it? I mean, that's what historians often attack biography for, by making the individual too important, by seeing everything through Napoleon's eyes, or in this case, Cromwell's eyes. And uh, Hutton, the author of this new Cromwell biography, I think is suggesting that these other biogra biographies, as good as they are, fall under that biographical smell, spell, not only under Cromwell's spell, but under the tendency of the biographer to do what? Concentrate on personal journeys of revelation and implementation, less on the motor of events subordinating contextual factors. Uh, what biography remains, in a sense, is Carlyle's great man theory of history in many ways. 
So here, here's how Hutton goes on. Let me just pause for a moment. <clears throat> Part of the reason <clears throat> to continue must lie in the sheer importance and allure of the subject, that of the only English commoner, to become the overall head of state, and so arguably the greatest commoner of all time. Moreover, Cromwell's story is as sensational as, as his eventual achievement, for he spent the first two-thirds of his life as an obscure, minor, and apparently unambitious provincial gentleman, before some of the most dramatic events in world history pitched him into supreme military and then political power in about a dozen years. He was, in addition, a soldier who never lost a battle or failed in a siege, despite taking up the trade of arms only in middle age and learning it entirely on the job. The harvest of national memory which he has reaped as a result has been proportionate. His is the statue past which anybody walks on the most direct route from the outside world to the British House of Commons. He has more than 250 streets and roads named after him in England, beating any other historical character with the exception of Queen Victoria and perhaps the Duke of Wellington. When the British Broadcasting Corporation held a poll to mark the new millennium by identifying the greatest British figure of the passing one, Cromwell came in third after Shakespeare and Churchill, but ahead of any monarch. He has joined that select band of historical personalities who have become legendary in the sense that they are best known for the words they never actually spoke or actions they never took. Just as there is no evidence that King Alfred ever burned any cakes, Sir Francis Drake played bowls on Plymouth Hole, Hoe, Sir Walter Raleigh dropped his cloak over a puddle, or Marie Antoinette suggested that the French should eat cake. So there is none, that is no evidence, that Cromwell ever told his men to trust in God and keep your powder dry. The phrase was popularized by the immensely influential Victorian scholar Samuel Rawson Gardner. To sum up his character as Gardner saw it. Oliver Cromwell is therefore a big alluring subject. Okay, so he's admitting why, why do biographers do this? Well, you want to match yourself against the bestest, the greatest, the most famous, um, and attach your name to that. Big alluring subject. One of the clearest examples of the way in which an individual personality can credibly sway history. And so justify historical biography. That's interesting. You know, that's another reason to write historical biography. Self-justifying, I suppose, as a meaningful sub-discipline. This is not in itself, however, the most compelling apparent reason for the persistence of new lies of the man. There is, I would suggest, an uneasy feeling among experts in this period that Cromwell is still somehow eluding them and that nobody has as yet quite managed to get to grips with him. Back in 1937, the compiler of the fullest edition of documents yet associated with him moaned that what we have gained in truth we have in a sense lost in certainty when dealing with Cromwell. Since then, this unease has increased. One of his recent biographers has commented that despite the huge number of preceding lives, many of the historical problems concerning him have never been satisfactorily answered. Another added that there is general agreement first that Cromwell is one of the greatest figures of British history, and yet also second that the nature of that greatness is shrouded in paradox. Some of that paradox lies in the chasm between his own, now we're getting to the heart of it, as I'll explain in a moment. Some of the Cromwell paradox 
lies in the chasm between his own representations of himself, in private as well as public, and the views taken of him by the majority of his contemporaries, including many who knew him well and found him to be ruthless, devious, and self-promoting, for many of them to the point of hypocrisy. More can be found in the manner in which he either abandoned or turned savagely against institutions, ideas, and people whom he had previously professed solemnly to uphold and admire. There is no doubt that he was both godly and wily, and the two seem at times to jar with each other. I would add, if I were writing this biography, that this is what constitutes um, figures who become myths, that they are a combination of opposites, not just a combination of opposites, but opposites that should not exist in the same person. Like the august Abraham Lincoln and honest Abe the rail splitter. Um, that those kinds of contradictions fascinate us. That the things that we admire or deplore uh, don't often get combined in a single individual. And when they do, that that subject is one of endless fascination. Hutton goes on, there is equally little doubt that he spoke alternately a language of healing, conservation, preservation, and one of charismatic and apocalyptic reform, and could be deliberately vague in defining concrete goals in either case. He was at, he was at once an outstanding success in achieving and maintaining power and a dismal failure in obtaining the ultimate aims which he set himself in taking it. Nonetheless, his recent biographers, while acknowledging these problems, have all resolved them in much the same way, which is why their portraits of the man are so similar. They have ended up by discounting the criticisms and condemnations of Cromwell made by contemporaries and taking him essentially at his own evaluation. This is largely because ultimately they have taken him literally at his own word, because so many of his words have been preserved. I think um, this has sometimes happened with Churchill biography, which I'm going to be getting to in a moment. The quantity and quality of them surpass those of any other ruler of England before Victoria, and they have been offered up in ever more capacious editions since the early 19th century. As a result, while the quality can beguile biographers, as it apparently provides direct access to the true workings of his mind, so the quantity can overpower them. It is too easy to use the letters and speeches as a scaffolding on which the rest of the book can be hung. Now we're getting into real biographical technique. Biographers always crave these kinds of things, letters, and yet they can become a kind of crutch. Cromwell's self-representation is the objective test of validity against which other historical records may be measured. And then he says, over the past three decades, there has been a growing sense of this problem among ex experts. So he's responding to the scholarship as well as the, I hate to use the word weaknesses in the previous biographies because I don't think he's quite putting it that way, but why they, why they aren't adequate. Uh, what I've taken to, to describing a biography is uh, it's incomplete and yet ever expanding. Okay, one more, uh, and I'm going to be brief on this one. I don't know what you think, but I, I, I usually aim for 30 to 40 minutes in a podcast. 
I think I'm trying people's patience if I go beyond that. Sometimes when I have guests, we go to 45, 50 minutes, but uh, I'm going to wrap it up pretty soon here. This is uh, Churchill's Shadow, The Life and Afterlife of Winston Churchill. So it's not sort of a conventional birth-to-death biography, but even so, I mean, plenty of studies of Churchill's influence. Uh, so again, why another biography of Churchill? This biography could begin the same way that um, Ronald Hutton's does of Oliver uh, Cromwell. If you don't know Jeffrey Wheatcroft, he's quite a well-known writer, I'm going to read what it says here on the jacket flap. A former literary editor of The Spectator, author of several books, including prize-winning The Controversy of Zion, he writes frequently for the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, and the New Republic. Well, that's enough to know about Jeffrey Wheatcroft. He's, he's quite well known. Now, he does something else which intrigued me, uh, and I don't know whether his book actually bears out what these epigraphs say, but I think this is very canny of him in starting the book with these epigraphs. So there are three epigraphs here. They're very short. I'm going to read them all. Um, the first one. If we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find that we have lost the future. Who wrote that? Winston Churchill. It's important when he said this. May 1940. You know, just as he's taking over as prime minister. Second epigraph. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. <laughs> I'm almost thinking of, uh, it's, this is not T.S. Eliot, but I'm thinking of T.S. Eliot's four quartets, uh, who makes similar statements about, about time and the role of uh, past, present, and future. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Who wrote that? George Orwell in 1984, 1949. Here's the last one. The victor, the victor, will never be asked if he told the truth. The victor will never be asked if he told the truth. Adolf Hitler, September 1939. Well, what interests me here is that uh, there's a kind of tension going on here about past, present, and future, uh, where we are in the stream of time, so to speak, and how biography is caught in these tensions. Uh, if if Wheatcroft really uh, delivers on what these epigraphs are probing in terms of our sense of time, he will have written a remarkable book. Uh, I haven't read this book yet, except for the very beginning. Um, one historian has already told me this book's gotten some negative reviews, so I'm not touting any of these books. How could I, since I haven't fully explored them yet? I'm not going to read all this, but the prologue uh, it takes place in the House of Commons in 1963. I will read the first paragraph. A hush fell as he entered the chamber in a wheelchair and took his seat. 
not on the treasury bench where he had sat as prime minister at an exalted moment in his country's history, but in another hallowed place below the gangway from where he had once delivered his warnings about the threat from Adolf Hitler, and before that about the threat from Mohandas Gandhi. Sir Winston Churchill had sat in the house since the beginning of the century, but hadn't spoken for some years, was visibly frail, and may not have properly followed proceedings. By now, more sacred talisman than elder statesman. That day in the summer, second paragraph, that day in the summer of 1963 was the one occasion when I ever saw Churchill plain and close at hand. So Weecroft is speaking here from personal experience. Since he's not writing a conventional biography, he says later in this prologue, this has allowed me to dwell on certain passages or controversies in Churchill's career, which have a particular resonance to this day. His imperial and racial attitudes, that's kind of alluded to in that first paragraph when we get the mention of both Hitler and Gandhi. Uh, Churchill's record on India is not very good, to say the least. Um, And yet there's this heroic side in the fight against Hitler. Particular resonance to this day issues, imperial and racial attitudes, his belief in the English-speaking races, later he used the word peoples, and their supposed unity, particularly in the form of an Anglo-American special relationship, his strategical ambitions, obsessions, and follies, his dealings with Ireland, his support of Zionism, his confused and conflicted attitude toward the bombing of cities and civilians, his complicated engagement with European integration and what part, if any, British, the British should play in it. Okay, well, all stuff up for debate in continuing biography of Churchill, whether we, whether Wheatcroft has something re- original and fresh to say uh, remains to be seen for those who read the entire book. I leave the verdict up to you. Uh, but at least Wheatcroft is addressing the issues that are uppermost in readers' minds today, as well as obviously dealing with a figure he had this one personal contact with. Okay, uh, I'm going to, in upcoming uh, podcasts, I'm going to again have my guests I'm going to be talking with Philip Gordon, who's written a book called Gay Faulkner, a very provocative title. It's really about um, Faulkner's attracted, uh, how Faulkner was attracted to, to, I guess, what we'll call gayness in both his life and work. I'll be speaking with um, Kathy Curtis, uh, who has a new biography, uh, the first biography of Elizabeth Hardwick, Hardwick. I will be speaking with um, Ray Boomhauer, who's written a very interesting biography of a war correspondent, Richard Tregaskis, most famous for his book, Guadalcanal Diary. Uh, and I have lots of other upcoming um, podcast guests. I will, uh, once in a while, come back to this series about what is new in biography, but I've already gone a little longer than I should have, according to my own standards. So I'm going to sign off, bid you happy listening. I hope it will be happy listening and uh, see you next week.